Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. It's been a few weeks now since we were in the book of Zechariah. It was three Sundays ago that I last preached, finishing up Zechariah chapter 7, and now we turn a corner and we look at the first eight verses in chapter 8. And the, the style of these verses is very different from what we looked at before. If you recall, at the end of chapter 7, we got a kind of, I think of it as a summary of the preaching of the former prophets. Basically, God repeating all the warnings that had come before the fall of Jerusalem, the warnings that had gone unheeded. Now, in chapter 8, once again, we're hearing things that we would have heard in the prophets of old, but now we're not so much getting the warnings of judgment, we're getting the promises of hope that those prophets spoke as well. God is reminding us of his promises of hope, and that's what he does here in this text, in this series of oracles. Now, if you were to look at this passage in your Bible, you'll notice that it doesn't look that different than what went before. But if you look at it in your order of worship, it actually looks quite different uh, because I've tried to format that text so that you can see in an exaggerated way the structure of these verses, what's happening here. Because what's happening is a a successive uh, one after another piling up of these oracles each of which is introduced by these words, thus says the Lord of hosts, or thus says the Lord. And we get five of them, like stones set one upon another. And if you look at the way that it's formatted in your order of worship, you can really appreciate how that works. Each one has a message, and all of those messages go together. And as we'll see, these are messages specifically to those of us who are struggling. In chapter 7, we got what you might think of as warnings, and now we're getting a message of encouragement to those who struggle, those who struggle to believe and those who struggle to have hope. We saw last time the desolation of the land was a direct result of the disobedience of the people. The reason why Jerusalem was a ruin and the land was in the state that it was in was because of the hardness of their hearts. The prophets had warned them to turn, had warned them to repent and to give up their sinful ways of oppression, but instead they just doubled down. They'd ignored what the prophets said. Unlike the people of Nineveh, who we heard from last time, who when they were called to repentance actually repented, the people of Israel, when they were called, hardened their hearts, stiffened their necks, and refused to change. Instead, they tried to appease God with false piety. They made up their own little rituals that were meant to be pleasing to God, even though they wouldn't do the things that God had actually asked them to do. Because of that, the kingdom had fallen. Because of that, the people had gone into exile. Because they had oppressed the widows and the fatherless and the sojourners and the poor, they became widows, they became fatherless, they became sojourners and poor themselves. But now they've returned, and now it's time to rebuild. 
the, the long period of exile is behind them, and now they can begin to reestablish themselves in their lives. And in that sense, we are people who can relate to them in a small way because we have seen our lives overturned. We've seen the things that we were accustomed to, the things that we counted on or even took for granted, taken away from us so that now as we come back and as we begin in these small ways to recover the fullness of, of who we have been as people and as a church, we find like we're grateful for things that before we wouldn't have even noticed. So we can understand what it was like for these people. Their task was to rebuild Jerusalem without making the same mistakes as their forefathers. And that was a daunting task because Jerusalem was a great city that lay in ruins. As they looked out, the task that they'd been called to was immense. It was seemingly impossible. And they knew that they were just as weak and they were just as prone to wander as their forefathers had been. And that was a source of discouragement to the people. A lot of work was required and there were no guarantees that they would be able to finish the work that they'd been called to. And even if they did finish it, there were no guarantees that they wouldn't mess it up the same way that their forefathers had done. I'm sure there were people among them, just like us, who heard what God was saying and said to themselves very confidently, this time will be different. This time we will be faithful. But how could they say that with any certainty, given their history, given their knowledge of themselves? The people who could say those words without any self-doubt were the self-righteous, the moralists. A self-righteous person has no trouble hearing what God says and saying, great, I'll do it, no problem. Because a self-righteous moralist thinks he's better than other people, including his ancestors, and of course he won't make the mistakes that they made. We've talked about this before, and I hope you've seen that that kind of confidence is a form of naivete. It's a form of immaturity. It's a failure to appreciate just how bad our sinful situation is and just how ill-equipped we are to deal with it. So when you find yourself speaking in such easy and confident ways, watch out. But if rebuilding the city was going to be such a massive and near impossible task, and if the new city, once it was rebuilt, if it was rebuilt, was just as likely to fall as the old one was, then why shouldn't the people, and why shouldn't we just conclude that it's beyond our power, it's beyond our ability, we just can't do it? And even if we could somehow manage it, we'd only mess it up. It's not worth attempting, because most likely it would just end in failure. Why should we rebuild? We're never going to get it the way that it used to be. Why should we rebuild if we're only going to repeat the same mistakes that we made in the past. If you've ever had to contemplate uh, embracing, let's say, a restrictive diet, or maybe you've run up a lot of debt and you've had to face the reality of how you'll have to tighten your belt in order to repay what you owe, or if you've ever had a broken relationship that you've had to deal with, whether it was a marriage, as as Ira was praying earlier, or some other kind of friendship or family relationship, and you've ever had to ask yourself, what would it take 
to repair this ruin. If you've ever had to start over in a new career, back at the beginning, where everything that you'd done before didn't count anymore, and you suddenly had to prove yourself all over again. If you've ever found yourself in a situation like that, then you understand the, the despair that the people of Israel must have been feeling. It's hard. It's hard to do those things. It's difficult to imagine living in those ways. And even if you do, it seems like there's no guarantee it will make a difference. There's no guarantee you will actually succeed or you won't find yourself in the same situation all over again. And the more you think about that, the more it seems like it would be a good idea just to stay on the couch or to keep running up your credit cards or to give up on your relationships and to let go of your ambition and just tell yourself, I probably couldn't do it anyway. I shouldn't even try. That voice inside that tells us not to do things that are beyond our ability, not even to attempt things that we couldn't possibly do, ends up having the last word. Now, spiritually speaking, we tend to fall into one of two categories or one of two camps. The moralists that I talked about earlier, the the people who are way too confident, who believe they can do it, but only because they underestimate the scale of the problem. They don't seem to realize what would really be required to solve it. You'll encounter people, and, and perhaps you are one of those people, who doesn't feel discouraged or daunted, who doesn't feel how far short you fall because you just haven't come to realize how high the standard is. Or there's another category of people that I'm going to call realists. Others would call pessimists because they do see just how difficult it is. They do see that there is no hope that the solution is not in their power. And the state of the realists, it's the realists who are being spoken to here. The dilemma of these realistic exiles who felt so discouraged is a perfect illustration of the necessity of grace. It's the whole reason why we need grace in the first place. They cannot rebuild the city on their own. They cannot ensure that the city will be faithful, that it will be a righteous city either. The moralists, with their man-made fasts, were already addressed in chapter 7. That's what that was all about. But now, Zechariah's prophecy turns its attention to the rest of us, to the realists, to those who are struggling to believe, struggling to have hope. And in this series of five oracles, God speaks to us, and he says to us, I care, and I'm here. The city will be restored to faithfulness, and don't worry about it, because it's not you who's going to do it, it's me who's going to do this. And then we will live together in faithfulness and righteousness. That's the message of hope from Zechariah chapter 8. God has plans for the faithful city. He plans to bring security. He plans to make it happen, and he invites us to come into the faithful city as well. So as you look at these five oracles, let's look first at God's plans for the faithful city. The first oracle is the one that's all about jealousy. I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. There's a lot of great 
in that sentence. But as we've reflected before, jealousy is one of those negative emotions that we're not meant to feel. And so it's weird to us when the Bible talks this way, when God describes himself as jealous, what does that mean? Well, this needs a little bit of translation for our ears. When God says, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy, he's speaking about his love. He's speaking about his love for Zion. He has a zeal. He has a passion. He has, in these words, a jealousy, sort of protective desire directed towards Zion, towards his people. It is a love that cannot be measured. He loves us to an incomprehensible degree. And that's what he means when he says, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy. When he says, I'm jealous for her with great wrath, these words are actually a warning to her enemies. I love Zion so much. I love my people with such a protective love that anyone who seeks to harm my people will be subject to my great wrath. So God is speaking here of the love that drives everything else. The love that drives him to do what he does. This great jealousy is a love for us that leads him not only to cherish us, but also to turn against all those who would come against us. God starts here because he wants you to know that all the plans that he has, when we talk about the, the plan of God, when we talk about God's work, his incomprehensible work of salvation. He wants you to know that all of it is a footnote to his love, that all of it flows from his love, that he is acting in every way, in every context, in every situation. When he acts in relation to you, he is acting on love. Well, that's where he's coming from. He's coming from love. And what is he doing? Well, in the second oracle, we see the act that makes all the difference, the thing that God does that makes all the difference. He says, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So the second oracle reveals what God is doing that makes his plan happen. And what he's doing is he's dwelling. It turns out the solution to all of our problems, the thing that fills the the hole within us is for God to dwell with us. The verb tenses here are interesting. I have returned. I will dwell. Get a sense of what has already taken place, but also a sense of what will come that corresponds to the way that we talk about eschatology, the way we talk about the final fulfillment of God's promises, his kingdom come, we often use that term, the already and the not yet. And here you see that reflected because what we're talking about here is the new Jerusalem. We're not just talking about the city back then that the people are trying to rebuild. We're talking about the city of God's people that God himself intends to rebuild. And as he dwells with us, he makes us faithful. As he dwells with us, he makes us holy. The act of God's indwelling is what makes the city the faithful city and what makes the mountain the holy mountain. It's God's indwelling 
that does this. It's not the other way around. So God doesn't say, when you are faithful, I will return. He doesn't say, when you are holy, I will dwell with you. It's the opposite. He says, I will return and you will be faithful. I will dwell with you and you will be holy. I will return and dwell with you and then you will be faithful and holy. So the thing that seems impossible to us, the thing that is impossible to us, to answer in our own strength God's call that we be faithful and that we be holy, of course, we would be doomed to fail if it were up to us. But God says it's not. Because what will make these things true, what will rename the city and make it the faithful city, what will rechristen the mountain and make it the holy mountain is me dwelling with you there. This is a work that I will do. And then in the third oracle, he gives us a vision of what that will be like, and it's a vision of security. He's going to speak now to us of security and also possibility in the faithful city. He says the streets will be secure. This third oracle, I think, is the most beautiful, just because it's the most strange and unexpected of these pictures. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. That's an image of joy. With the elderly are sitting at ease. The children are out playing. Everyone is doing those things. When you see that happening... It's something you only see when there is peace, when there is security. When the realm is secure and at peace, then the old people can come out and sit in the streets and they can watch as the young children are out at play and no one is worried about what will happen. In times of insecurity, in times of uncertainty, that's not what's going on. If you go to beleaguered, besieged cities, even today, if you were to take a tour around the world, you would go to places where there are wars, conflicts taking place. You won't see this scene. You won't see old people outside at their ease. You won't see children playing in the streets because of the danger of being exposed. The only time you will see this is in times of peace, in times of Insecurity, the weak are in hiding. When conflict is taking place in the streets, we hide those who are most vulnerable away. But in times of joy, there is no hiding. It's interesting here that in order to communicate how peaceful and how secure his kingdom will be, how glorious this city, this faithful city will be, God uses these particular images to communicate it. Because here you see that it's the joy of the weak that becomes the yardstick for restoration. It's the joy of the weak specifically that becomes the yardstick for restoration. When you see the weak playing in the streets, then you will know that God has secured the life of his city. A city so secure that its most vulnerable citizens have reason to rejoice. Of course, in this image, too, you see something that we as God's covenant people need to remember, which is the generational aspect of God's promises. It's not 
an accident that we're given this generational vision of well-being, where we have uh, the old people and the young people, and the people in between can witness this and reflect on the fact that God is faithful from generation to generation, and that the new Jerusalem, his faithful city, is a place where the hopes and the potentials of human flourishing are realized where human beings live as they were meant to live, and they enjoy what they were meant to enjoy, and they flourish. They don't cower in fear, but they live the lives that they've been called to live. Now, we aspire to live the good life, and all of us in one way or another, and all the people around us, whether they believe in Christ or believe in someone else, all of them in their own way are pursuing the good life, the life that seems good to them, the life of joy and pleasure, a life of happiness. That aspiration for a good life drives all human beings, and oftentimes it leads us astray. In our desire for happiness, oftentimes we make ourselves anything but happy. And yet, the desire itself is not wrong. The desire itself is not sinful. It's part of being human. We have a desire to live as we've been called to live, and we've been called to live lives of joy. As we see here, we have been called to it. God here is promising us the good life. He's giving us a picture of what beautiful living would look like. A life without fear or insecurity where we can enjoy the things that we love. Now, he's giving us this promise in a kind of analogy, in a symbol, a picture of people out in the streets But the reality of what he's promising is actually much greater than the analogy that he gives us. So don't imagine that all God's going to do is establish peace in the new Jerusalem. Like in Sioux Falls, old people can go outside and kids can play in the streets without fear. That's only a taste of what he will do, only a a, a small part of the peace that he will bring. And when you think about that, it's easy to think, well, that doesn't seem possible. That seems impossible. It seems like too much to ask. We all want to be happy. We all want joy. But those of us who are realists understand, well, that's just not likely to happen. And you're always going to have a little unhappiness mixed in with your happiness. It just can't happen. God hears the way that we qualify our hopes, the way that we hedge our bets. And he says in the fourth oracle, basically, hmm, okay, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? I get it. You've been in exile all these years. The city that you have found is in ruins, and it seems like it's so much greater the way it used to be than anything you could ever build. And so you say to yourself, this is marvelous. In other words, this is beyond belief. And God says, all right, just because you can't imagine it, does that mean I can't imagine it? Just because you can't do it, does that mean I can't do it? Just because you don't think this can happen, so what? So what? Because I can do it. I can bring it to pass. Because as the angel says, with God, nothing is impossible. In fact, God delights in bringing to pass these unrealistic and unattainable hopes. In those words, God speaks of how not marvelous it is in his sight that this peace can exist. He's giving us strong assurance 
This is reassurance to us as we struggle to believe, as we struggle to have hope in these things. God is saying, look, just because you struggle, don't think I will. Just because it's beyond your strength, don't imagine that it's beyond mine. Just because you can't conceive of this happening doesn't mean I can't easily bring it to pass. You can have assurance that what I've promised I will do. He reiterates that promise in the final oracle, which is a covenantal oracle. Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. When you hear God say, I will save my people, and then ending with that covenantal formula, they shall be my people, and I will be their God, you can hear that God is speaking in the context of his covenant promises, right? His promise of salvation. The inhabitants of the faithful city are those who are being saved. The inhabitants, the people who dwell in the faithful city, are the people who God says, I am saving. I will save them. The restoration of the city is another symbol. As marvelous as it might be to rebuild the physical city of Jerusalem, what God intends to do is far greater than that. God intends to build the people into a faithful city. And the restoration of the city is merely a symbol of God's salvation in its fullness. You can see that. And just as clearly, you can see that the salvation that God promises flows out of that covenant relationship, that covenant bond between God and his people. The reason that's important is this. Because we are prone to doubt, we are prone to wander, we're prone to uh, have difficulty clinging to God's promises of salvation. But when you remember that God has bound himself to do this, that God has made a public promise to save his people. He's announced it to all creation that he's going to do this. What he's essentially done is he's giving us all of these reasons to be assured that he will do what he says he will do. He has put himself, so to speak, on the hook, and you can have confidence that because the promise of salvation flows from God's covenant, that it will take place. Essentially, God is saying to the realists, he's saying to those who struggle to have hope and to believe that because of the covenants, I will save you, even if it seems impossible to you, that I will bring peace and security to you, and you will flourish. So that what the gospel of Jesus Christ does is it calls us to come into the faithful city. The gospel is a message for those of you who are struggling to have hope. And I recognize your life right now is a lot like mine in the sense that there are a lot of things that need to be rebuilt. There are a lot of things that have been torn down. And it's easy to ask yourself whether you have the strength for that. It would have been easy to rebuild if you started rebuilding immediately. But instead, you had to wait and you had to reflect and you had to think about just how much damage had been done. And now it can be difficult to imagine repairing 
that destruction. And even if you could do it, it's hard to know that you won't make the same mistakes over again. Say you put in the effort and you rebuild the things that are broken in your life. What guarantee do you have that it won't just be broken again? The gospel says it seems impossible to you, but that's no reason for it to be impossible with me. I can do all things. The gospel is also for those of you who are struggling to be faithful. We are in Christ, and we want to live as Christ has called us to live, but our lives have become messy, and that faithfulness has become hard. It's hard to imagine sacrificing what you'd have to sacrifice to be faithful again. Hard imagining undoing the things that you've done, turning your back on the things that you've welcomed into your life. It's hard to imagine unwriting all that you've written. You've made too many mistakes already, and so it seems like it would just be easier to give up. To those struggling in that way, the gospel comes and says, it may be impossible for you, but all things are possible with me. And your brokenness is just a measure of how much wholeness, by my grace, I desire to bring into your life. So Zechariah speaks, and we ought to listen. You think about it, in the days of Zechariah, long before Jesus came, in the days of Zechariah, God answered the question that we're struggling with right now. He says, you will be a faithful city because I will live within you and make you faithful and holy. It's not up to you. It's me, and I will do it by dwelling with you. And then Jesus came. And Jesus was the answer in the flesh to that question. Jesus was God coming and dwelling with us. And then the Spirit was sent to dwell within us, save and to sanctify us. And now we see that God is fulfilling these words day by day in our lives, making us into a faithful city. So what we need to hear and what we need to cling to is this. First, God is jealous for you. God is driven by a great love for you. And he is dwelling in you. And you will be faithful, he says. And you will be holy, he says. Not in your power, but because he dwells within you. And your streets will overflow with joy and with security. And if that seems impossible to you right now, so what? Because nothing is impossible with God. You're in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. The thing you've got to know about him, that Jesus keeps his promises. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.